Welcome to the third of the Science to Sport podcasts hosted on The Hub. Joining us today are Ben Capistanio, Mike Posthumus, myself, Jeroen Swart, and Steve Bowman once again. Steve, would you like to read some of the questions that have been submitted by some of the uh, Hubbers? And we can kick off. Right, we uh, have one here from Craig Hume. His question is, has there been a study done on the effects of combining a starvation ride with high-intensity interval training? Any benefits or drawbacks? So who wants to answer that question, the first one? You have well, for me to kick into that? Yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah, well, what we're t- referring to there, when you, when you, the one first is the IMTG ride. So for those of you who haven't heard of that, it refers to intramuscular triglycerides. And some research done in the last decade showed that uh, if you did some exercise while not having eaten for the preceding eight hours, that that would then stimulate the storage of little fat droplets around the mitochondria, which are inside your muscle cells and where all the fuel that you burn, whether it be fat or carbohydrate, is actually processed. And that uh, increased storage of those little fat cells basically was hypothesized to increase your endurance. But what's happened in more recent years is that they've started combining these basically starvation rides with then subsequent interval training in the afternoon. So to answer the question, yes, there's definitely a benefit to those. They're called train low rides or train low uh, uh, or sleep low. You can get sleep low where you sleep the night before after doing a session and then not eating any carbohydrates and then training in the morning. Or you can train in the morning and then not eat any carbohydrates during the day and then do a session in the afternoon. And those are basically train low rides. And uh, if you do them as intervals, that's probably the most difficult way to do things because when you're not fueled up and your glycogen stores are low, the last thing your body wants to do is to do an interval session. But the research does show that they stimulate a training adaptation more than uh, a simple interval session would do when you're well fueled. So they definitely have an advantage in terms of stimulating uh, training. The drawbacks are is first of all that you feel terrible doing them so they 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 really one of the worst sessions that you can do and i have athletes uh, and 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 i they don't mind me telling uh, who they are but philip bass and mariska strauss both absolutely refuse to do those sessions purely because they are such uh, difficult ones to do but um the the other drawback is uh, that uh, carbohydrate restriction can uh, suppress your immune system. So doing this, and, and, and actually research has shown that these sessions in particular actually do suppress your immune response. And so it's very easy to get sick after them. So if you do one of these sessions, you've got to stay away from crowds, stay away from places where you can get exposed to viruses and uh, for the following, say, 12 to 24 hours, that you're not because uh, the likelihood of infection is definitely much higher when you do those. And lastly, the thing to make them easier is um, one of the things that, that helpalize caffeine. So you can have a good intake in carbs is to rinse carbohydrate in your mouth. So sip on your water bottle, but don't swallow it. Sip and spit. And that carbohydrate that you actually take into your mouth feeds into sensors in the mouth that, that connect to the brain. And they um, reduce your perceived exertion and make you feel better. So you can actually complete the interval session while still completing it in the fasted state or the train low state. And then Jiren, just to jump in there, so obviously you wouldn't want a, an athlete to, to do too many of these sessions generally in a, in a week. Uh, how many? One, two, if they sort of separated? And I would enough. never prescribe more than two a week. Yeah. Two a week is already quite tough. It's very easy when you do two of them uh, to push that athlete into an overtraining syndrome so they can develop quite significant fatigue. So I'd say probably one a week would be a sufficient one. You could do another fasted ride another day during the week. So 
just the fasted part with without having been tra uh, stayed fasted after the exercise. So not the train low part, but just overnight sleep and a and a an easy session, yeah. but uh, but certainly not the the interval training while well, fasted. So a more cautious approach I've I've often used with my athletes is to instead of have them do the do the train low and have a high intensity session is ha do the high intensity session have them not to eat any carbohydrates overnight and then the next morning perform that IMTG ride at low intensity at low intensity and that's a much safer option and the majority of the train low studies have actually done it that way around yeah. And the reason for that is, again, it's much safer, reduces the risk of illness, and reduces the risk of overtraining. So that's an approach I personally prefer doing. Um, of course, that approach, that train-low approach I just mentioned, um, makes that ride much harder than simply waking up faster and going out for a ride. Mm. So initially, when I start off with an athlete, I would start them off doing standard wake-up, do a fasted ride, and as soon as athletes start getting adapted where they say, well, I can easily ride two hours fasted, then the next step um, in advancing that is to have them do an intensity session the previous evening, late afternoon, evening, have them not have any carbohydrates afterwards, and then the next morning to do that fasted ride. Yeah, this is a great approach. Um, and then Mike, what is your instruction then for that high intensity session the day before the fasted ride? No carbohydrates during the event or from let's say it's six intervals after the second interval or, or something i normally tell them to feel before the intensity session okay feel with carbohydrates only from when drinks. they're on the bike only water yeah no carbohydrates afterwards and very importantly in this approach is to after your session after your your fasted session to then have ensure that you get your recovery and ensure you eat a yeah. balanced diet for the remainder of the day and and get your recovery shake or whatever you use as recovery immediately after that ride. Okay, and that's after the ride in the morning, the following morning. Yes, correct. And Steve, just to clarify, beer does contain carbohydrate. Yeah. So no beer, Steve. No beers. <laughs> Unfortunate. I mean, this the starvation thing. Um, really, is a is is the idea of this just losing weight? No, no, it's it, an actual it, training response here. So you're actually you're training so the gut. You're not training the gut. You're training all the systems. So all the the things that happen when you do a normal training session are accelerated by doing a faster training session. So you store more carbohydrates in the form of glycogen. Okay. You improve uh, your fat oxidation. So you use fat as a fuel, and you improve your that way you improve your efficiency in terms of your fuel stores. Uh, the whole bunch of different adaptive responses, all and of which will benefit you. Yeah, I think that's critically important. Everyone thinks, now I've got to do IMTG rides to lose weight. You're not doing this to lose weight. Weight is lost through taking in or consuming less energy than what you are expending. expending. And it's simple as that. So simply doing a faster ride isn't going to make you lean. Um, we're doing this for added benefit. Now, I always say, um, if you ride with carbohydrates, it might take you five hours to generate the same amount of stress and signaling to adapt as you can do in two hours doing a fasted ride. Mm. So it is a more time efficient way, especially for those individuals that can't go out and ride five hours. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. The next question is from Mad Max. Uh, what's the best training advice someone has ever given you? Um, I'll, my one was, um, don't be scared to rest. Mm. <laughs> I think we should all file one sentences. <laughs> What's yours, my, my one sentence is, if in doubt, leave it out. 
uh, mine would probably be um, I think consistency is key so just keep you know, avoid those sort of long breaks that's more than one sentence okay well whatever you've all it's been too conservative <laughs> I'm gonna just go go till you blow <laughs> <laughs> sounds, like, <laughs> sounds like you Mike <laughs> definitely all right so question three uh, Ludi deploy it's a little bit of a long one here uh, most energy drinks and gels state that you must not consume more than the daily recommended intake. Uh, with him, he, after about 160 kilometers, he starts getting stomach cramps and feels nauseous, and then an upset stomach, and at about 270 k's, he starts coming right. So basically, how should one consume these energy drinks is his question. Yeah, so this, this uh, experience that he gets with stomach cramps and nauseousness uh, and then uh, some diarrhea, uh, is a common experience in cyclists and runners as well and the most common cause of that is just consuming too many carbohydrates so the gut has to absorb the carbohydrates that you consume before you can use them as fuel and the majority of people will uh, consume too many carbs and basically those carbs then pool in the gut so they distend the stomach your stomach stops emptying you start to feel nauseous and also those carbs then land up in the uh, distal intestine where uh, bacteria start to ferment them and that thing causes other uh, effects like diarrhea and nausea. So really the, 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 um, the volume of carbohydrate that you should, should ingest depends also on what kind of carbohydrate you consume. So if you're taking in a straightforward maltodextrin, for instance, which is like long chains of glucose, or if you're taking in glucose-based uh, uh, energy drinks, then the maximum that you can absorb is 60 grams per hour. And you can work out how many carbs there are in a drink by just looking at the nutritional information. What they found out in research is that if you consume something that also has fructose in it, so basically two-thirds of glucose-based sugars and then one-third fructose, is fructose has its own pathway through the gut. And that then allows you to absorb more of it. And there you can go up to 90 grams per hour. But the key is you have to have a trained gut. So like you train all other parts of the body, the gut is actually trainable. So you need to start consuming those carbohydrates in those quantities when you're training so that your gut upregulates the amount of transporters to take up those, those carbohydrates so that on race day it's actually already trained to be able to absorb those carbs so that they then don't sit up sit and block up the, the system. And so uh, two or three rides a week you should really fuel maximally the way you would if you were racing at either 60 grams an hour all the way through to 90 grams an hour for a maltodextrin fructose mix and that'll probably avert this uh, complication. The last thing is that if you're riding in hot conditions or really high intensities, you're gonna divert blood flow away from the gut. So as soon as you start doing that, the gut's not working as efficiently, and that means it's not gonna be able to absorb as much. So under really stressful conditions, you're gonna actually drop that carbohydrate intake even further. Focus more on, say, electrolyte-containing fluids and less on carbohydrate-containing drinks, bars, gels, and drop it from 90 all the way down to maybe even 40 grams per hour then the risk is obviously that then if you don't take in enough carbohydrates that you end up blowing which is why in hot conditions it's easier to to bonk essentially and if you're pushing too hard in the beginning same story yeah it's interesting i mean i did the sani this weekend's the first time i've done a stage race in 20 years odd and what i realized and you always hear people with dodgy stomachs and all that but when you're actually doing the ride you can see why they they um concentrating so much they don't really drink They'll stop, they'll drink half a bottle, and when they get the water stops, they stuff their faces with whatever's on the table. They just overload the systems, and then the body freaks out. Yeah. Um, You've got to take it in consistently yeah. so that it's and like that a continuous, happen, yeah. like a, a conveyor belt that's continuously pushing 
the fuel into yeah. your body rather than suddenly dumping a, a massive amount on it. I mean, I just just something that I notice. I mean, I I use a hydro bag system just because I like them. I mean, South Africans mm. hate them. Mm. But the thing that I found is, as untrained as I was, because I could just sip continually exactly. through the day, my energy was rock steady the whole day. Yeah. And guys around me who were drinking, who were fitter, but drinking lots and then nothing and then stuffing the face, they were all over the place. So mm. it's definitely trying to eat consistently in small amounts is the key. Eh? Yeah. How did you manage to eat while swimming at Sony? <laughs> Practice. Drinking. Practice. <laughs> but uh, doc, uh, Steve's actually brought up a, a good point here that those small sips don't those aid in, in sort of gastric emptying as well. If you've got sort of, let's say, like a large bolus from, say, breakfast where you've had uh, 500 mils of water or something with your pre race meal and then just topping up as you go through the day, doesn't that help speed up gastric Yeah, emptying? so the gastric emptying will depend on how distended the stomach is. So you want to prime it at first so that before the race, you actually want to already start drinking a little bit of your, your carbohydrate drink, taking about 400 or 500 mils, and that primes the stomach to start emptying. And then as you're sipping, you're just continuously adding to the load that's already emptying from the stomach into the small intestine. Yeah. So you keep it completely maximally loaded, and that just pushes through the carbohydrate into the intestine where it's absorbed at a constant rate and uh, I would like to add on to the question and I'm asking out of interest I don't really know the answer and I'm, I've got the doctor here and I thought it might be a good opportunity um, Sani was a classical example where um, racing it is such a fast race I didn't stop in d during day one or day three where we raced. I didn't stop at a water table mm -hmm. because it was just too fast. You couldn't afford to. Um, so during each of those, I only drank two very small bottles of fluid. So I had only about one liter during three and a bit hours. Um, and I was topping up my carbohydrate intake through simply taking in more gels. So I was still trying to hit my 60 to 80 grams, but just through more gels. Could that possibly lead to issues? Is the fluid essential? The fluid, in terms of performance, is beneficial. So if you look at the research that's that on racing in, in warm ambient conditions, taking in fluids anywhere up to 800 mils per hour does improve performance as a result of maintaining hydration status and, and the cooling effect. But it's not essential in terms of your fueling. You can take your fuel in in the form of gel, in, in the form of a, a solid bar or in the form of liquids and they're absorbed contrary to what we used to think but they're absorbed at the same rate so you can actually fuel yourself just by taking in gels or, or energy bars and not actually drink anything it may affect your performance particularly if it's hotter so if it's really cool and you're not sweating a lot you're not losing fluids you could actually increase your amount of uh, uh, energy intake from gels and bars and the, 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 the reduced fluid intake might not affect your performance but as soon as it starts to get warm, it definitely will. Right, question four uh, is from Joe. As a coach, how big a role does a client's genetic build play, specifically to fast, fast twitch and slow twitch muscles? Is there a correlation between a client who is gen genetically a better sprinter and VO2 max and a client with more slow twitch muscles that, and naturally a better endurance athlete and VO2 max. So I'll, I'll jump in. I've done, um, dabbled a little bit in genetics and... Dabbled uh, a little bit. <laughs> 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 Understatement of the year. Mike, Mike, just for your interest, Mike has a PhD in genetics, so um, this <laughs> question's probably appropriate for him. Go ahead. Yeah, so, uh, and, uh, un unfortunately, um, 
I sort of feel, and quite often in science, if you if you've studied science, quite often these complicated questions don't really have have answers. And I'm not aware of a scientific study that has specifically investigated um, these questions. But it certainly is a good question, and and has got me thinking. Um, as far as I'm concerned, your, your VO2 max will simply be directly proportional. There are some factors that might influence it, but it's directly proportional to the power you're producing. Um, so if you, uh, you at a final stage end your PPO at 500 watts, um, generally you, we are able to estimate your VO2 max. So VO2 max isn't independent of power. Um, it's very dependent and linked to the power you are currently producing. Um, so I don't really think you would find major differences between someone that is a better sprinter or someone that's a better endurance athlete. Um, we know if we look at elite athletes, they're all going to have very similar PPOs. A climber, someone like Chris Froome, and Jeroen might be able to share some of his data with us. Um, an elite climber like that will have a higher PPO and therefore you'll have a higher VO2 max. Um, the genetic question is basically to simplify um, what Joe was asking is does genetics play a role and yes genetics does play a role. Um, we do not know a lot. There are some um, genetic variants that um, scientific studies have shown to be associated with endurance performance. One example for those that are interested, if you Google the ACE gene, specifically the ACE II genotype, has been associated with endurance performance. So individuals can either have an II genotype or the opposite DD genotype. We know that individuals with an II genotype will be better endurance athletes. Um, uh, one of our um, papers that my group published also found that the COL6A1 gene was associated specifically with cycling performance and it's one of the few papers that have actually shown an association specifically with cycling performance and we showed um, that individuals with a specific genotype in the COL6A1 gene performed better during the bike leg of an Ironman. Um, so that's just a little bit of the history about the genetics. There certainly is a genetic component, um, but we do not know enough yet to be able to use this to be predictive about performance. Yeah, I think it's also the, the, the it illustrates that how much performance is multifactorial. So mm -hmm. genetics play a role. Completely. But in cycling, we know that the, the biggest role is actually your training history. Mm -hmm. so exactly. A genetically uh, a person who's maybe less genetically endowed can achieve a very high level of cycling by having really good quality training over a long period of time. And so it's not an absolute to have a, a great genetic composition. So just on that VO2 max uh, story, so as you said, VO2 max is determined by how much muscle you use, not that the muscle that you're able to, or the power that you produce is, is predicted by your VO2 max, it's the other way around. That's something that some people, and specifically exercise physiologists, have trouble getting their heads around. So you can basically, you make the decision at the end of a VO2 max test to stop pedaling because it's just you're suffering too much and you say I can't continue and uh, you stop pedaling and that then determines what your final PPO is and that then because of there's a slight variation based on efficiency but uh, you'll generally have a similar VO2 max and you can get there in two ways so somebody who's very very aerobically endowed in other words that they have lots of mitochondria and type 1 slow twitch fibers might get there because they are able to do that what we call oxidatively and then somebody else like a sprinter 
will potentially have very high blood lactate concentrations but could do that for a very short period of time and a PPO is actually a relatively short period of time so there, there isn't much discrimination between them. You'd see that more in longer events mm. so somebody with more type 1 slow twitch fibers would uh, potentially do better in a three four hour long marathon where they can use fuel more efficiently but you won't be able to. Just with regard to the, the question of genetics uh, my question would, of, would be um, the mind is obviously a, a very important factor in this and I'm sure that the, the docs will see guys or, and ladies with fantastic numbers in the lab but when it comes to, to racing they just don't seem to get it right so um, wouldn't then the genetics in a way? Yeah, no, I certainly agree with that. And I think the key component there, you say the mind is to become even less more scientific, is the ability to suffer. Um, I often found to be the best correlates of performance. What we have to remember, what you are saying is, we are saying when we, um, when I've said in the past that genetics associates with performance, it doesn't mean that it causes performance. Yeah. Performance is multifactorial, and there's several factors. Genetics is just one very small factor. I 100% agree with you that being mentally strong and having that ability to suffer is actually um, a very important factor because we've often seen it all in the lab that athletes are excellent at producing numbers in training, but put them out in a race and they just can't perform. And that is often that's a mental barrier that we've seen in, in all athletes we coach. Sorry, Jordan, like, I don't know if the thousands of tests we've done in our uh, laboratory, I mean, uh, at the end of a max test, you're asking people to essentially go as as hard as they can uh, for as long as they can. And it's quite interesting because a lot of the time there are these pretty obvious indicators when people stop what we would classify as early in the test. And I think it's the same thing too as what Mike was saying, it's just they don't have that ability to really suffer and, and, and push through. I mean, a lot of the time, particularly with a test, it's, it's obviously the motivation is a big key, but, but I'm sure some, you see a similar thing in, in racing where they just, they cannot, um, they, they're missing that extra sort of gear or ability to, to really, really like, put themselves into some discomfort. You can see sometimes you'll get, you ride in a group and there'll be guys that you, you just can't keep up with training. And mm-hmm. then when it comes to race day, they're out the back mm-hmm. every time. It's just bizarre. Look, last, last week we actually published uh, Zig Sinclair Gibson, Ross Tucker and I published a uh, review paper which covered the work that we've all done together in the last 10 years on how the brain regulates exercise activity. And um, I'm going to distill 10 years worth of work into probably one minute, but the, the, the very, very short story is when you exercise, you're basically stressing the body. The body knows when it's being stressed because it, it feels it through various different senses. And that feeds back to the brain and says, I'm under stress and I don't want this system, whether it be your cardiovascular system or heat, for instance, as uh, that builds up during stuff, to cause damage to the body. So it starts increasing those signals. And essentially what we feel as the sense of effort, which is really an emotion, is the comprehensive assessment of all those feelings basically put into one emotion. And so two things happen. You're motivated to continue and the sense of effort is telling you to stop. And the balance between those two will determine whether you either slow down, speed up, keep the same, or stop exercising altogether. And in an open-ended task like a VO2 max test, that sense of effort is going to just keep rising and rising and rising until you basically can't tolerate it anymore and you decide to stop. In a race, it's based on how far you are from the finish. 
So knowing exactly how far you are from the finish and having done that type of event and that distance before makes it easier because your body, your, your brain then knows how your body responded to that distance before. It then can predict how you're going to feel later on and give you a sense of effort that's based on its predictive ability. In other words, a template of what you've done before. And the closer you get to the finish, it basically releases the handbrake and the sense of effort disappears. Even if your legs are screaming in agony and you're breathless and you're overheating, you don't feel like it's as much effort when you're in the final kilometer as you would if that same sensation physically happened halfway through the race. And that's really um, how that works. It's related to the distance. And you need to motivate yourself to overcome that sense of effort. So the mind plays a huge role. You can manipulate that with caffeine and amphetamines, for instance. And, uh, and if you're doing illegal. well, you feel better. <laughs> amphetamines being illegal. <laughs> but in our research, we show that taking amphetamines actually increased that performance by with a 19% higher power output for 32% longer. So there's a, a massive amount of reserve in the physical body. But the mind won't let you access that because it's always trying to save energy for some unforetold event and to make sure that you don't end up hurting yourself. And Doc, like, uh, would that not be a sort of a, I wouldn't say a byproduct, but, but also a result of, of training, particularly if you're doing a lot of sort of high intensity training where you, you can almost develop that resilience or you get mm. used to that discomfort? Yeah, so, the, so part of the training is the physical t uh, adaptation, but the other part is learning how to tolerate that intense, the f intense physical sensations and the intense sense of effort that goes with that and being able to, f to really just feel comfortable in that pain, in other words, to, to really acknowledge the pain and, and to accept it as normal and then to be able to continue into that. And, uh, and that's one of the hallmarks. Some people are born with that. Some people can just accept that and just push through it. And other athletes that produce fantastic numbers in the lab, when the race uh, starts to get difficult, they go to pieces and they just don't perform. Just a, just a little note on that as well. Um, what's your opinion on, I mean, nowadays with training aids, people ride a bicycle and they'll have a Garmin on and it's giving them heart rate and watts and all the information they need. And I mean, again, I saw the Sony people, are, the guys are riding, they're looking at them, oh, my heart rate's elevated and they start panicking. Surely it's just, there's a time when you don't want to have any information, you just mm -hmm. got to trust your body. I mean, do you find this, do you find that some of the athletes rely too heavily on that and they psych themselves out? They overgovern themselves. Yeah. And in a race day situation, you're anxious, you're excited, You've had extra caffeine, so your heart rate's really high, and they're not used to seeing those high heart rates, so they think they're going a lot harder than they are, so they hold themselves back unnecessarily. The real governor that tells you whether you're going too hard is your brain. Your brain is exceptionally good at pacing itself, and basically you've got to listen to that brain and not listen to all kinds of other gadgets. And uh, So those gadgets are really useful to review what you've done, but when you race, you go and feel. Yeah. Turn Turn it upside down or mm. down the, the exception is in the first 10 minutes when sometimes you're very excited sometimes you can overdo it um, you obviously have to follow the bunch but uh, if it's for instance a cross-country race sometimes you can go out too hard and uh, and then end up causing yourself uh, to blow later on in the race and not recover properly so sometimes they can help you just moderate that little bit but later on in the race you just go how you feel there was that uh, story I forget the runner's name the comrades mm. Uh, portable heart rate monitors that just sort of hit the market and he was pacing himself based on his heart rate and uh, looked at his heart rate and said he was going too fast so he slowed down slowed down and all the other competitors and he was I think he was the favorite in, in that given year and he got passed by all the runners and then he ran the last 10 k's at some ridiculous speed because he was so fresh I mean he, I, he still didn't win but basically he'd 
he'd gone according to his oh, heart and uh, yeah, completely slowed down. Which you've also got to remember, and I have a lot of athletes tell me afterwards, they think there's something wrong with them because their heart rates are so high in a race. In a race, Remember, you're going to be rested when you start a race. You're going to be excitable. You would have probably had a little bit of caffeine. All these factors that will cause a heart rate to be up to 10 beats higher than normal. And you're going to be able to maintain that 10 beats higher for normal for two, sometimes three hours. So you've got extremely high heart rates during a racing condition. So there's no chance you can use heart rate mm -hmm. to pace yourself. Off, not no, yeah, on that note, I, I think Steve, back in the day when I cross country races were three hours, I, I think I used to average about 187 beats per minute for three hours. Which <laughs> right, it's yeah. quite frightening when you look at it afterwards, but back yeah. in the time you just go. That's what you'd use, yeah. That's it. So we have a, a question here from Vicus Pistorius. Um, I feel really tired and sleepy during the day after my 4.30 a.m. ride, one and a half hour ride he does even if I take a recovery shake and my suggested recovery time uh, on his Sintu is much more than when I train after work I try grab a power bar as I wake up I need to beat the midday slump and doesn't matter what I eat I stay hungry and tired and try to take a power nap at lunch if possible am I training too hard in the morning or should I train indoor after everyone went to bed is AM training as efficient as PM training um. I'll jump into this one. I think Vix's question is a, a good one and probably as we go into winter going to be something that's going to uh, sort of be the case for, for many of us. I think the crux of the issue uh, around uh, Vix's problem is or the, the slump that he's feeling is, is basically sleep. So if if you're waking up at 4.30 in the morning to, to ride, firstly, well done. Um, I don't think many of us would, uh, would do that, uh, barring Mike here. Uh, but even you, you don't get up at, what do you find? He gets up at 3.30. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it depends on the length, I suppose. The right. No, my alarm normally goes off at 4.30. 4.30, okay. Mm. So, um, the, the but that normally results in an hour-long breakfast and 10 cups of coffee <laughs> before I can actually get going. Um, so uh, the, the issue is obviously then making sure that you, you're getting enough sleep and, and going to bed uh, early enough to try and get as close to or as much sleep um, uh, as possible so that um, you know, you're not too... Uh, too tired during the um, the rest of the day. Um, in terms of uh, effectiveness, whether morning training or afternoon training is more uh, is more effective. There's actually a fair amount of research going um, being uh, performed here at um, UCT. Uh, Dr. Dale Ray is looking at uh, circadian rhythm, so basically um, our body's own internal clock, and seeing if. Um, you should you are better suited to morning training or afternoon training uh, during I think you were a research participant for that you were the only or one of the s only sort of afternoon uh, guys. I always knew that I could not do these PPA races at six in the morning <laughs> I would detest them more than anything else I think I became a cross-country rider purely because of the fact that we used to start our races at lunchtime so yeah I took part of that study and it, it showed that pretty much I start to wake up at about mid-morning and, and only really get going after lunch uh, and, and then um, I'm able to go right until late in the night yeah. but unfortunately convention forces up and kids force us to get up at six in the morning and uh, and work so I'm a, I'm a bit disadvantaged but uh, definitely that, uh, that chronotype essentially that uh, yeah. that you have determines how well you perform at what time. Um, and then I think uh, Mike brought this up as we were re reviewing the questions was um, Vickers should, should maybe just uh, realize that there, there could be a, a period of adaptation where you need to get used to 
um, your your sort of time schedule of waking up at hoppers four in the morning for a for a training ride, uh, and that does take time. It's not something that's going to happen sort of over the uh, course of a week, but rather something that'll happen uh, over a good couple of weeks and probably a couple of months getting used to that. So, Mike, you're you're an early morning riser and and trainer. You generally have all your sessions done yeah, by about so, eight. No, 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 no. so I think you covered in in what I was going to say is this is generally within clients I work with um, I normally hear these symptoms of tired during the day um, struggling to wake up early when they're not accustomed to it so as soon as you start off and say okay I'm gonna start on Monday I'm gonna start my new exercise my new training program and I'm gonna wake up at 4:30. that first week is gonna be hell that first month is gonna be difficult but slowly over time you get used to it and I've often found myself I know um, as Ben mentioned there there's research that shows that some people are morning and some people are evening um, performers I've always found it to be quite adaptable that you are able to get into a routine and once you get into a routine of waking up early training early the fatigue during midday will lessen um, so my advice to Vickers would be hang in there it'll probably get better but also important to go to bed earlier earlier yeah. yes yeah. And sure. what is the rule eight hours is a good seven isn't it eight is considered yeah. an optimal amount of sleep it varies depending on the individual mm. but generally uh, across the board an average of eight hours of not a sleep a night so is you can back it up a from a healthy a healthy amount interestingly south africans are actually the fall in terms of the the different uh, nations sleep times in in the lowest uh, uh, numbers in terms of how much sleep we get. We're one of the poorest sleepers as opposed to, for instance, uh, the Japanese and the Dutch who sleep uh, more than, than most other nations. So mm. most South Africans are tend to be a bit sleep deprived. Why are we so aggressive on the roads? Maybe, maybe <laughs> the, I think there's quite a few factors that, that cause that. Uh, taxis being one of them, but, uh, but sleep mm. deprivation may be one. And just adding to that, it's just one of these things that we see time and time again is that we get age group athletes who think that because they get up at 4.30 in the morning and that they put in their three hours of training, that that somehow equates to the same kind of training that a professional rider would do, for instance, if they got up at 9 in the morning, did their three hours mm. and went to bed at 7 or 8 in the evening. It doesn't. So you can't substitute, uh, t basically rob yourself of time, sleep time, to get in training load and expect to be able to recover from that and adapt to that. It's one of the key causes of somebody plateauing in their ability. They've got to realize that they're a human being who's got other stresses and they're gonna have other aspects that take up their energy, particularly mental energy. And so um, you can't get up that early and then have a stressful job, go to sleep late, still expect to perform and to adapt to that training. Mm. One, one, one other thing I just wanted to add to mm. Vix's question is, um, he did sort of ask if he should maybe move uh, to uh, to the afternoon for his training or the, the evening once everyone's gone to bed. Uh, I would just recommend that he exercise caution um, uh, with that. So particularly with uh, afternoon training and if he's using uh, stuff like caffeine, etc., that could then obviously also negatively impact on his sleep. So decrease his sleep latency, how long it takes him to get to sleep, and then also uh, affect his um Sort of his feelings of uh, fatigue, etc., the next day. So, afternoon is, or evening isn't always uh, best uh, if you uh, if you're not used to it. Great, and it is early evening now, so I think that's probably time to call it a wrap on this podcast. Thank you all for coming to this third in our series of podcasts, and looking forward to the next one. Thank you.